Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. So if you want to see the various aircraft described today, please check out the pictures on the World of Warbirds Facebook page. The topic for today's episode is thanks to a request from listener David Heatdirks in Virginia, USA. There are times when a warbird makes such a contribution to a certain battle that it becomes forever associated and linked to that action. When we say Hawker Hurricane or Supermarine Spitfire, we think of the Battle of Britain. How about the fairy swordfish, the sinking of the Bismarck? And when I say Douglas SBD Dauntless, do we think of the SBDs that fought with the French? Or the Army's version known as the Banshee? Or their actions in Norway? Or during the torch landings? Yes, the SBD fought with those forces and in those locations and actions, but no. The SBD will forever be welded into the Battle of Midway, which author Walter Lord called Incredible Victory in his fabulous book of the same name on the battle, which, by the way, was one of the first war books I ever read as a kid. The Incredible Victory, of which he writes, was in no small part a result of the actions of this epic warbird. But even above and beyond Midway, the contributions of this aircraft cannot be overstated. Perhaps I should just quote the title of the article from the U.S. Naval Institute's Naval History Magazine. It's entitled, The Plane That Won the War. Design and Development and Prototypes The story of the Dauntless begins with the Northrop BT-1. No, that wasn't a mistake. Yes, I said Northrop. In 1935, Northrop was a subsidiary of the Douglas Aircraft Company and they were working on a two-seat, single-engine dive bomber for the U.S. Navy. The BT-1 was really a work in progress. It was powered by a 700-horsepower Pratt & Whitney XR-1535-66 double-row air-cooled radial engine. As it was designed for dive bombing, it had the distinctive dive brakes that were perforated in order to eliminate tail buffeting during the dive. For a detailed discussion on the whole concept of dive bombing, I invite you to check out my episode on the German JU-87 Stuka, which was designed at around the same time as the BT-1. They tried out several different landing gear configurations on this aircraft. One prototype was built with tricycle landing gear and was used for experiments in landing such aircraft on a carrier. One version had main gear that retracted aft into fared in quotes, trousers beneath the wings. I find this one to be particularly cute as the trousers make the aircraft look chunky, sort of like the plane put on a few pounds. Although 55 were built, and they did serve on the USS Yorktown and Enterprise, the BT-1 was not particularly successful. It was difficult to handle, especially at low speeds, which is a major problem for carrier-based aircraft. It was known to roll unexpectedly, and several aircraft were lost in crashes. Between 1938 and 1939, there were some major changes in the world of the future Dauntless. The final variant, which was known as the XBT-2, was modified to have landing gear which folded laterally into recessed wheel wells. 
leading edge slots were added in order to address the low speed handling problems. The canopy was redesigned to its final look and it had a more powerful 800 horsepower Wright XR 1820-32 radial. The XBT2 first flew on the 25th of April 1938 and the Navy was pleased with it and ordered 144 aircraft although the aircraft was now known as the Douglas SBD-1. Northrop the company had become the El Zagundo division of Douglas Aircraft, and Jack Northrop, the man, had left the company to start his own and third aircraft company. And we'll definitely hear about him again when we profile the very cool-looking P-61 Black Widow Night Fighter and Northrop's revolutionary flying wings. Both the U.S. Navy and Marines ordered the new aircraft, which was now known as the SBD. So, what does SBD stand for? That would be Scout Bomber by Douglas, although one interpretation of the acronym is slow but deadly, but that reputation will be developed in the future. The Marine Corps got 57 SBD-1s, while the Navy got 87 SBD-2s. The SBD-3, which came out in early 1941, had increased armor protection, self-sealing fuel tanks, and a total of four machine guns. The definitive and most numerous version of the Dauntless was the SBD-5, which was powered by a 1,200 horsepower Wright R-1820-60 Cyclone 9-cylinder air-cooled radial piston engine. Although much more powerful, this power plant was known to provide much, in quotes, external lubrication, close quotes, or oil leaks. Luckily, the aircraft had a 20-gallon oil capacity. It was armed with 250 caliber forward-firing synchronized Browning M2 machine guns in the engine cowling and two flexible-mounted 30 caliber Browning M1919 machine guns for the rear gunner. It could also carry 2,200 pounds of bombs. Over 2,400 of these SBD-5s were built, being flown not only by the U.S., but also by the Royal Navy, the Royal New Zealand Air Force, the Free French Force, and Mexico. Operational History The United States Marine Fighter Attack Squadron 232, nicknamed the Red Devils, was stationed at Marine Corps Air Station Ewa, Oahu, Hawaii. During the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, nine of the squadron's SBDs were destroyed, with ten more requiring major work to get them airworthy again. One member of the squadron was killed. It wasn't a very auspicious start to the Dauntless's war record. However, the type was able to draw blood a couple of days later on December 10, 1941. A Douglas SBD-2 Dauntless aircraft patrolling from the USS Enterprise spotted the Japanese submarine I-70, which was a Kadai type of cruiser submarine, which was also on patrol near Hawaii. The Dauntless dove in and damaged the sub's hull with a 1,000-pound bomb. Although it didn't hit directly, it was enough to prevent the sub from diving, which pretty much makes it a sitting duck. Later on that day, another Dauntless from the Enterprise spotted the damaged submarine, and the fight was on. 
The SBD began its preparatory climb to 5,000 feet to go in for the kill, but the I-70 was in no way giving up. The sub started maneuvering frantically and opened up with its 13mm machine gun on the deck. The SBD went in for the dive, nailed the sub amidships, and the SBD crew saw several of the gunners being tossed overboard with the blast. Then the sub disappeared under the water. The SBD Dauntless was in the war. During the winter and early spring of 1942, SBDs from the Lexington, Yorktown, and Enterprise aircraft carriers hit Japanese locations in the Gilberts and the Marshalls, New Guinea, Rabaul, Wake, and Marcus Islands. On the 7th of May 1942, during the Battle of the Coral Sea, the Lexington and Yorktown launched 53 SBDs, as well as 22 Douglas TBD Devastator torpedo planes. This attack force was protected by 18 F-4F Wildcats. They were going out hunting for a couple of Japanese carriers, but due to a coding error, these U.S. airplanes were headed in the wrong direction. Luckily enough, another Japanese carrier, along with her escorts and a convoy of other ships, had been spotted, and the attack force was directed to intercept. It was the Shoho, Azuiho-class aircraft carrier that had only been commissioned six months previously. It was just after 11 in the morning when the first wave of Dauntlesses nosed over for their attack. There were three Japanese fighters two A-5Ms and one A-6M-0, engaged in combat air patrol, or CAP, at the time, and these, in turn, dove in to attack the diving Dauntlesses. The Shoho began maneuvering furiously and managed to avoid all the bombs dropped by the SBDs. On the climb-out, one Dauntless was hit and downed by one of the CAP Zeros, and several other SBDs were shot up as they tried to extricate themselves. Shoho managed to launch three more Zeros to reinforce its cap and to try to protect itself from further attack. The next wave of Dauntlesses dove in only eight minutes later, and this time, two SBDs were successful. The Shoho was nailed by two 1,000-pound bombs. These bombs punched through the flight deck and blew up inside the ship's hangars. The fueled and armed aircraft within also blew up and burst into flames. The Shoho was badly wounded, and a couple of minutes later, the TBD Devastators began their torpedo runs, and they put five fish into her sides, flooding the engine and boiler rooms and knocking out her steering control. The Yorktown's Dauntlesses nosed over ten minutes later, and this time the Shoho was a nearly stationary target, and they plastered the carrier with eleven more 1,000-pound bombs. The carrier was now dead in the water when more Yorktown Devastators put more torpedoes into her for the coup de grace. The SBDs had played an essential role in what Lieutenant Commander Robert E. Dixon, commander of the Lexington's dive bombers, called scratching one flat top. The SBDs may have been garnering a reputation as a potent ship killer. However, they were also gaining attention as air-to-air fighters too even though this was not their primary role. They sometimes flew combat air patrols, CAP, themselves over their own carriers, and even scored some victories against Japanese torpedo aircraft trying to attack the U.S. carriers. 
Now, no account of the SBD can be complete without speaking of Midway, because if Midway can be seen as a turning point in the Pacific War, then the pivotal attack by the SBD squadrons was the turning point in the Battle of Midway. It is not in the purview of this episode to fully cover the history of the Battle of Midway, but here is the rough story of the battle in a nutshell. It was a couple of months after the audacious Doolittle B-25 raid on Japan, and the Japanese forces were engaged in a barrier strategy to extend Japan's defensive perimeter in order to protect the home islands from future such attacks. Grabbing the tiny island of Midway was part of this plan. The attack was just the first step in future attacks against Fiji, Samoa, and ultimately Hawaii, in order to create a great wide buffer of protective ocean. The Japanese sent a formidable force to Midway, including four fleet carriers, two battleships, two heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, 12 destroyers, and 248 carrier-based aircraft, amongst others. What the Japanese didn't know was that the U.S. had broken their code and were roughly aware of their plans. The U.S. was able to send three fleet carriers, eight cruisers, 15 destroyers, 233 carrier-based aircraft, and 16 submarines to reinforce the 127 land-based aircraft and marines on the island. All of this hardware set sail to eventually rendezvous at the tiny speck of Midway Island. On June 3, 1942, the opposing forces began stumbling into each other. The opening shots were fired when nine Midway-based B-17s found a group of Japanese transports and dropped their bombs. Although they thought that they had hit some ships, they hadn't. Very early the next morning, a Japanese oil tanker was hit by a torpedo dropped by an American PBY. Many, many more American torpedoes would go into the water during the battle. Amazingly, this would be the only one that would do any damage to the enemy. U.S. torpedoes had a lot of problems at the start of the Second World War. A few hours later, at 4.30 on June 4th, the main initial Japanese attack on Midway was launched. 36 HED-3A VAL dive bombers and 36 Nakajima B-5NE Kate torpedo bombers took off from the Japanese carriers. These were escorted by 36 Mitsubishi A6M-0 fighters. Six American 4F4 Wildcats and 20 F2A Brewster Buffaloes took off to meet them. Although they knocked down a few of the Japanese attackers, all but two of the American planes were destroyed or rendered unairworthy in the air battle. The Japanese raiders had a more difficult time over the island of Midway itself. They found the AA fire to be fierce, and during the raid, 11 were destroyed. 14 were heavily damaged, and 29 took some hits. Also, it was ascertained that Midway was not properly prepped for the invasion. Another raid would be required. While the Japanese were hitting Midway, American aircraft, including six Grumman Avengers, 11 Vought SB-2U Vindicators, 16 SBD Dauntlesses, four U.S. Army Air Corps B-26 Marauders, and 15 B-17 Flying Fortresses attacked the Japanese forces. Although this seemed like a very strong attack, the Japanese fighter cap brushed it off fairly easily, 
shooting down 17 of the U.S. aircraft in exchange for three of their own fighters lost. The Dauntlesses in this wave actually attacked in a non-conventional, very shallow manner, as they were too inexperienced to attempt the normal dive-bombing attack. At this point in the battle, the fates just didn't seem to be pointing one way or the other. Both sides had taken and given damage, and the day was just beginning. Admiral Nagumo, the leader of the Japanese carrier force, ordered his reserve aircraft still on board his carriers to prepare for a second strike on Midway. This meant loading general-purpose bombs. His crews were about 30 minutes into this job when a Japanese scout plane radioed that they had spotted an American task force with an aircraft carrier. With this news, snap and very fateful decisions needed to be made. Nagumo at first halted the loading of his reserve aircraft for the ground strike. Perhaps they would be needed to be loaded with anti-ship weapons to go after the American ships. Nagumo had another problem. His first strike force was on its way back from Midway, and if his carrier deck was occupied, then those planes would have to ditch in the sea when they ran out of gas. In the end, Nagumo decided to keep his reserves below deck, wait for the return of his strike force, reload, and send the group as a whole for the second attack. He was encouraged by the lackluster performance of the American attack so far. He retrieved his initial strike force, and then received more precise information about the U.S. carrier's whereabouts. He decided to go hunting for the carrier, turning his ships in that direction, and began loading his planes for a strike on shipping. His decision would seem to be justified soon. For the Americans had already launched a series of strikes that would be easily knocked down without any significant damage to his fleet. At 9.20, 15 U.S. TBD Devastators of Squadron VT-8 attempted attack and they were shot down with only one survivor of the 30 aircrew sent. Squadron VT-6 then attacked and lost 9 of its 14 Devastators with one ditching later. Finally, 10 of 12 Devastators from VT-3 were all shot down next. No torpedoes from these attacks did any damage. Admiral Nagumo must have felt pretty good about the performance of his force by this time. However, even though things had been going very well for him, the balance of fate was tipping away. His cap, although brutally effective for every attack so far, was now low on ammunition and fuel, and perhaps even more critically, altitude. They had gone low and chased after the torpedo planes, and now the air above the carriers was relatively unprotected. Just as the hero of our episode showed up in force, and above, three squadrons of SBDs from Enterprise and Yorktown. The Japanese carrier Kaga got their attention first. The SBDs dove in and hit Kaga with one 1,000-pound bomb and several 500-pound bombs. The bombs punched through her elevators and entered the ship's upper hangar, where they created mayhem amongst the armed and fueled planes found there. Another bomb exploded directly on the carrier's island, wrecking the bridge, killing her captain, Jusaku Okada, and his command staff. Blasts ruptured the ship's aviation gasoline lines 
and damaged her fire suppression system, which meant that there was absolutely nothing to stop the sheets of flaming avgas pouring onto the hangar deck. Fires set off 80,000 pounds of bombs and torpedoes that were found on the hangar deck. Although she wouldn't sink for another few hours, Kaga was finished. The SBDs then shifted their attention to another carrier, the Akagi. It was hit by only one bomb, but that was enough. Again, the bomb punctured into the upper hangar deck, exploding amongst the fully armed and fueled aircraft waiting there, setting off numerous secondary explosions and fires that bent the flight deck upwards and caused crucial rudder damage. Yorktown's SPD squadron, VB-3, went after a third Japanese carrier, the Soryu, and hit her with the same type of results, hitting planes in the hangar deck, igniting gasoline, and setting off secondary explosions and fires. What didn't help all the Japanese carriers was that they had all been caught between loading operations with bombs and torpedoes and stacked ammo and fuel hoses all over the place making them the perfect targets for the diving SBDs. The aircraft had lived up to their nickname. They were slow, but deadly. One Japanese carrier, Hiryu, escaped this attack and launched her own counterattack, which targeted and struck the USS Yorktown, which would eventually be lost. However, later in the day, 24 SBDs from Enterprise and Yorktown arrived over Hiryu and put four to five bombs into her, and although she didn't sink right away, she was finished too. The Japanese had lost four aircraft carriers and the battle, mainly due to the SBD. On the 20th of August, a dozen Red Devil SBD Dauntlesses flew off the escort aircraft carrier USS Long Island and landed at Henderson Field, Guadalcanal, which had been named for United States Marine Corps Major Lofton Henderson, who had been killed leading a formation of SBDs at Midway. They were accompanied by 18 F-4F Wildcat fighter planes, and they started combat operations the very next day. Two days later, some Army P-400s, which was the, in quotations, marketing name for the P-39 Aerocobra, arrived. On the 24th, more SBDs joined the party as they couldn't land on their own aircraft carrier, the USS Enterprise, as it had been damaged in battle. This ragtag grouping of aircraft became known as the Cactus Air Force. Cactus was the code name for Guadalcanal, and it was a pretty ironic name for the place, considering how wet and muddy it could actually get when it wasn't dry and dusty. SBDs claimed another aircraft carrier during the Battle of Guadalcanal when the Ryu was sent in to join the conflict and was spotted by 31 SBDs and 9 Avengers from the carrier USS Saratoga. The SBDs proved their worth again, this time hitting the Ryu three times with their 1,000-pound bombs. The Ryu lived a little while longer, but soon took on a steadily worsening list until she capsized. SBDs also sank a cruiser and 9 transports during the naval battle of Guadalcanal. During the Battle of the Santa Cruz Islands, a pair of SBDs put two bombs through the Zuihu's flight deck and put yet another Japanese aircraft carrier out of the war for nearly two months. Although forever associated with a war against the Empire of Japan, SBDs were not isolated to the Pacific. SBDs flew off the aircraft carrier USS Ranger 
and two other escort carriers during Operation Torch, the Allied landings in North Africa, in November 1942. Almost a year later, they again launched from the Ranger to attack German shipping around Norway. The Battle of the Philippine Sea in June 1944 was the last major battle of the carrier-borne SVDs, although they would continue to serve until the end of the war. The U.S. was trying to change out the SBD for the newer Curtis SB-2C Helldiver, which was a much larger aircraft with folding wings and able to carry more armament. Even though the Helldiver was newer and on the surface better, many dive bomber pilots actually preferred the SBD due to it being lighter with better low-speed handling characteristics. In the end, 5,936 SBDs were produced during the war years, terminating on the 21st of July, 1944. Amongst other victories, these aircraft had destroyed six Japanese carriers, 14 cruisers, six destroyers, 15 transports, or cargo ships. The version of the SBD that was built for the Army was known as the A-24 Banshee. 948 of the SBDs built were allocated to the Army, and these didn't have the arrestor gear needed for carrier operations. Banshees operated in Australia, the Gilberts, and Kiska, Alaska. Pilots Rather than profile a historical pilot, I've chosen to read you an account written by Dave Hirschman, who has flown the Commemorative Air Force SBD. The complete story published on January 1st, 2011, entitled Flying a National Treasure, can be found on the AOPA's website. Unfortunately, he wasn't doing a carrier-based flight, nor did he do a dive-bombing-style attack. But I guess they don't allow this national treasure to uh, do those kind of activities. I will start reading right after Mr. Hirschman got his dual flight check and when he first started flying it solo. Stepping into the SPD for the first time, a few things jump out. First, the cockpit itself is massive and roomy. The sliding canopy left open during ground operations, including takeoff and landing, accentuates the feeling of open space around you. Then, when you look at the instrument panel, you quickly realize that nothing is quite where you would expect it to be. The SBD was designed long before cockpit standardization, so it takes time to figure out where the proper dials and levers are hidden. The landing gear and hydraulic system handles, for example, are on the right side of the cockpit, and the dive brake handle is right next to the flap handle. The propeller lever is on the back side of the throttle quadrant, and the switch that controls the cowl flaps is next to, and looks just like, the magneto switch. It would be real easy to attempt to close the cowl flaps and inadvertently shut down the engine. The cockpit's dominant feature is a sliding navigation table that emerges from the instrument panel. The plotting board is about the same size as an airline tray table and it sits right in the pilot's lap. Fortunately, this airplane has GPS so I won't need the giant whiz wheel. But the plotting board hints at the navigational skills wartime SBD pilots needed to find their way to and from targets. And then, I was actually taxiing this historic aircraft to the runway. Each of the Wright's nine cylinders puts out more horsepower than the entire engine of the Cessna 150 I had first soloed. 
My mouth was dry by the time I made my first radio transmission announcing that Douglas 82 Golf Alpha was about to take off from runway 31. I stowed the laminated checklist, then double-checked the abbreviated cheat sheet engraved on the left side of the canopy frame. Fuel selector on the left main tank. Fuel pump on. Flaps up. Trim set. Low blower. Prop full forward. Canopy open. Cal flaps open. Tail wheel locked. As the throttle went forward, the noise level was jarring. Each time the growling propeller made me think I was at full power, a glance at the manifold pressure gauge told me to keep pushing. I kept the tail low, and the airplane surged off the runway. I tried to keep the pitch steady as I transferred the stick to my left hand and raised the landing gear with my right. Then I reduced the power to 35 inches and brought the prop back to 2300 RPM from 2500 and configured the airplane for a cruise climb. There was surprisingly little wind in my face as the plane accelerated to 180 miles per hour, but tiny whirlwinds tugged and snapped at my shirt sleeves. Over the farm fields of Atlanta, I went through the same maneuvers that Buckley and I had practiced an hour earlier. With the dramatically improved visibility in the front cockpit and the additional information the instruments provided, placing the airplane where I wanted it seemed almost second nature, even though I was so new to it. After about 30 minutes of flying, it was time to put the Dauntless back on the ground. The pre-landing cheat sheet on the right side of the canopy frame kept me from leaving out anything critical. Fuel pump on. Landing gear down. Tailwheel locked. Flaps down. Prop full forward. Final approach was 85 miles an hour, and the controls felt light and positive even as the airspeed gradually diminished. Crossing the fence at 80 miles an hour, a slight flare and the airplane's main landing gear touched down, and I pinned them on with a forward stick. The tailwheel didn't have far to fall since the SBD stands at a relative flat angle, and I let it roll the full length of the 5,000 foot runway. The SBD tends to roll straight, but applying the brakes requires jabs to the top part of the rudder pedals. After three takeoffs and full stop landings, I was ready to consider my first solo hour in the SBD a success. During the next few air show seasons, I got to fly the Dauntless to events in Texas, South Carolina, Michigan, Ohio, and Florida. On my very first fuel stop after a four-hour leg from Atlanta, I was shocked to find the oil level in the Dauntless almost down to four gallons. Not quartz, gallons. The left wing root was coated in a film so slippery that just standing on it was treacherous. I called back to the hangar and asked Crew Chief Dickerson whether to ground the airplane right then and there. In his soothing voice, he reminded me of the first thing he had ever told me about Wright engines. When they were designed and built, Oil was cheap, and soap was cheap. At air shows, I would meet people with personal connections to the airplane. Some had flown SBDs as pilots or gunners. Others had family members who built or worked on them. All had stories. Some funny, some tragic. In the telling, it didn't take much imagination to recognize youthful 20-somethings peering out through octogenarians' eyes. Flying the SBD was thrilling and confidence-building from a stick-and-rudder standpoint, but much more significant, the SBD animates the historical sweep of U.S. naval aviation, recognizes its unique place in our national life, and honors the people who have dedicated their lives to it, both then and now. 
anchors away. Survivors. In the National Naval Aviation Museum in Pensacola, Florida, can be found SBD-2, number 02106. It was built at Douglas's El Zagundo plant in December and assigned to the U.S. Navy on the last day of 1940. During 1941, it served on the aircraft carrier U.S. Lexington and participated in the Louisiana maneuvers. After an engine replacement, it traveled with Lexington to Hawaii. It was supposed to continue on to Midway, but was offloaded to make room for other aircraft. So, circumstances had arranged things that SBD-2, number 02106, would be sitting at Luke Field on Ford Island in the middle of Pearl Harbor on the morning of the 7th of December 1941, when the Japanese attacked. Although she didn't fight on that day, she was there. Later, when Lexington came back to Pearl Harbor, 02106 was embarked and headed off to war in the South Pacific. On the 10th of March, 1942, she finally drew blood. Flown by pilot Lieutenant Mark T. Whittier with aviation radio man gunner 2nd Class Forrest G. Stanley, the aircraft flew along with 103 other attack planes from the carriers Lexington and Yorktown in a raid against Japanese shipping at Leh and Salamoa in New Guinea. Whittier received the Navy Cross for pressing home his attack against a Japanese ship on that day. Following these operations, Lexington returned to Pearl Harbor. SBD-02106 was offloaded, put ashore, and then loaded on the aircraft transport Kitty Hawk for the lift to the not-yet-famous island of Midway. On the 4th of June 1942, SBD-02106 was being piloted by First Lieutenant Daniel Iverson with Private First Class Wallace Reed behind the 30 caliber machine gun in the rear cockpit. She was one of 16 SBD-2s of VMSB-241 that took off to attack Japanese aircraft carriers to the west of Midway. After they spotted the Japanese carrier Hiryu, the formation came under serious anti-aircraft fire and had to dodge enemy fighters of the Hiryu's combat air patrol. Iverson began his attack, diving with two Japanese Zero fighters on his tail, but he maintained the dive and released his bomb at an altitude of 800 feet. On the way out, two other Zeros joined the original two on Iverson's tail, nipping at their heels for miles. SPD number 02106 was shot over 200 times, including losing her hydraulic system and wounding Reed at the rear gun. One bullet even snipped off Iverson's throat microphone cord. Now that's a little too close. Nevertheless, SPD number 02106 managed to get them back to Midway, making a messy one-wheel landing on the Atoll's airstrip. It wasn't pretty, but it was better than half of the squadron who never came back at all. Iverson received the Navy Cross, and Reed got the Distinguished Flying Cross for their actions that day. The aircraft was transported back to the States, patched up, and assigned to the Carrier Qualification Training Unit at NAS Glenview, Illinois, to teach new pilots how to land on aircraft carriers. On the 11th of June, 1943, Marine 2nd Lieutenant Donald A. Douglas, Jr., managed to do what the Japanese had not been able to do. He put SBD-02106 
number 02106 into the water after a bad approach to the training carrier Sable. Douglas was fished out of the water by the Coast Guard, but the aircraft sank to the bottom of Lake Michigan, where she remained for 51 years until 1994 when she was brought up and restored. I will post pictures on the uh, Facebook page, but uh, trust me, she looked pretty good after all that time. Maybe it was the cold waters of Lake Michigan that helped to preserve her. So now she lives at the National Naval Aviation Museum in Pensacola, being an extremely rare and historic aircraft. After having witnessed and survived the attack at Pearl Harbor, two hazardous combat missions, and being a Battle of Midway veteran. I'd love to get down to Florida at some point to see her. As always, there are pictures of what has been described today on the World of Warbirds Facebook page, and if you like this stuff, give me a good review or drop a line to suggest a future Warbird. Thanks. If you get some joy out of listening, please consider supporting the podcast by making a modest donation via PayPal. My PayPal address is at WOWB17. That's at World of Warbird 17, or if you want to remember it this way, at WOWB17. You'll have my eternal gratitude.